Reading from Micah chapter 7, verses 8 to 20. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the light will be a, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's uh, great to see your faces. Uh, our uh, text that we will be looking into this morning is our reading from the book of Micah, where concluding our series on Micah. So I invite you to turn to that reading, uh, have it open before you as we seek to uh, hear what God has to say to us. But uh, as, as we dig in, let me just uh, pray for us uh, for a moment to start. Our Father, we, uh, we come before you, um, we come to your word, and we ask that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. Would uh, you uh, help us to see Jesus? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Will you give us hope where we need hope? Would you uh, grant us your spirit as we come together? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So uh, as we've been uh, walking through the book of Micah these past few weeks, You've probably noticed a few things about Micah that make him stand out. He's an Old Testament prophet, and as a prophet, he's tasked with speaking the words of God. And he's supposed to speak them to God's people. And these words are not always the words that you want to hear. They, they can be abrasive. 
they can be blunt, uh, they can be offensive and shocking. Uh, he uses images of cannibalism and disaster and violence. And Micah is a voice that is speaking to places of power and comfort and corruption. He's coming at us from a place that is on the margins. The name that he gives us is Micah of Morsheth, and that's uh, in the very first verse of Micah 1.1. We don't know a lot about uh, his hometown other than it was on the plains. It was a fair distance away from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was like the major city center. So Micah's kind of from the middle of nowhere, uh, and the odds are he was probably from a poor farming family. And I note this because uh, this gives us an insight into the force of Micah's words. He's not from a place of power and influence. And he's writing in a time in Israel's history where the centers of power and influence have grown increasingly corrupt. The political system's corrupt. Israel's leaders are allied with enemy nations. The system of commerce is corrupt. There's business leaders that are exploiting people and especially the poor. And the religious system's corrupt. Even the prophets, those who are tasked with speaking the words of God, they're corrupt. And when the places of power and influence are corrupt, uh, it's those who are on the margins that suffer most acutely. And it's often those who are most closely aligned with power that have the most to lose by speaking up against corruption. And it's not that positions of power and influence are bad in themselves, but it's when you're beholden to them and they go bad, that, that, that's where the problems start to arise. And so Micah, this, this farmer prophet guy, this uh, not in with the in crowd guy, brings an important word. Micah's actually a voice for those without a voice. Yet at the same time, we find that in Micah, as a prophet of God who has not given into corruption, uh, he's a prophet who maybe because he isn't beholden to the circles of power in the city, has a certain freedom and distance from the shady things that are going on. We find that in Micah, as a prophet of God, that is one who speaks the word of God. In Micah, God is speaking up for those without much of a voice. And he's calling for justice and peace, and for his people to return to God, to face judgment, but also to be healed and experience restoration. So there's uh, this, this back and forth structure to the book of Micah. Uh, we have these, what are called oracles of doom that are mixed in with oracles of hope. And there's a large number of these. They're all organized into three main addresses or, or sections. Our passage is the last half of the third and final address from Micah, which is Micah chapters six and seven. Last week, Jim led us through the first half of this address that starts in Micah six, where he, he focused us on Micah's admonition to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with our God. And on how doing justice and loving kindness flow out of humbly walking with God. And our passage is a continuation on this train of thought. So uh, turning to our passage, the second half of this final address can be broken down into four parts. 
The first is an expression of humility and lament before the face of God and in front of all the other nations of the earth. And then the remaining three sections that we have look toward a future hope of restoration, justice, and peace. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at how we respond to humiliation and how our hope in who God is, in Jesus, that hope sustains us and empowers us through days that are not easy to endure. And now, uh, sometimes it's hard to follow Micah's train of thought for us because Micah tends to break into poetry. So there, there's, there's narrative bits, uh, but when he focuses in on injustice or even on the character of God, he bursts into poetry. And, and that, that's really what these oracles are. They're, they're, they're poems. Micah has a narrative, but he stitches these, these series of poems together to communicate what he wants. And his voice is, is kind of like, um, if you think about maybe like Bob Dylan, um, like early Bob Dylan, talking like 1960s, 1970s protest musician, Bob Dylan. Um, or uh, if that, that's too far back for you, um, maybe like a voice like, like Kendrick Lamar. Um, he's the first hip-hop artist to win a Pulitzer Prize uh, for music, and he brings a voice to uh, coming out of Compton and, and struggles for racial justice and, and all sorts of things. Um, or, uh, or maybe another uh, voice is uh, Wendell Berry. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Wendell Berry. He's this, this farmer poet uh, who writes poems um, like like there's one called the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Uh, if you had a chance, read it. Um, it, it it's good stuff. But, uh, but these are all kind of, of, of fringe voices of one sort or the other. Um, but they all highlight an issue or issues of injustice. And, and that's Micah's voice. Um, and the book of Micah covers a long stretch of years over the reign of three different kings uh, God's people at this time had been split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Micah has seen the northern kingdom destroyed at the hands of the Assyrians, And he's lived through the southern kingdom of Judah, narrowly avoiding the same fate. And so far, like they're heading there and things don't look good. But, but where we drop in in chapter 7... Uh, we're at the point in the story where it's too late. Micah, along with other prophets, uh, such as Isaiah, have been warning God's people for years, for decades, that even though they may think that everything is good and that they've been putting up a good front, when, when you peel back that veneer of wealth and luxury and comfort that everyone's striving for, What's exposed is the deep injustice that props up society when it's oriented away from God. There's people that have been taken advantage of. Um, they're manipulated and marginalized. Rich men are full of violence. Uh, merchants are deceitful. And at the beginning of chapter six, we even see God's people trying to manipulate God, uh, trying to buy him off with religious practices. And, and the time that we're in right now is functioning a bit in this manner for us. It's pulling back the veil a bit. And I think that's partly why this time that we're in right now has been so unsettling and disruptive. 
where we're still in the middle of a pandemic, right? People are still dying. Um, there, there's spikes in virus cases in, in multiple neighborhoods here in the city. Uh, there, there's a contentious election that's just weeks away. Uh, um, and, and what a week we've had, like, like the president has COVID. Um, the economy is, is still a mess. Uh, there's still protests over racial injustice. And, and we're seeing things. Like, like some of us have, have known some of these things for a while. For some of us, it's new. Uh, the, the ways the virus has disproportionately impacted communities of color and the service industries. The ways in which uh, racism is still deeply woven into the fabric of our society. There, there, there's the precarious nature of jobs that we thought were a lot more secure than they turned out to be. There, there, there's wide disparities in how wealth is accumulated and managed and distributed. And, and we're even seeing ways that we ourselves have been implicated in these things and, and sometimes even unknowingly. In, in Micah chapter six and seven, God's people have been put on trial for all the ways that they've tried to manipulate God, to take advantage of others and seek their own well-being at the cost of others. And they've been found guilty. And not only have they been found guilty, but they've become a farce. They're a laughing stock to the rest of the world. Chapter six is an indictment against Israel, followed by God serving justice. And where our reading this morning picks up is right after the punishment has been laid out. Justice is served, and Micah is voicing the response of God's people. So chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, it reads, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So this is our first section. Um, Israel is speaking out to the nations that surround it. God's people have been judged. They've been conquered. They're brought low. And, and understandably, the surrounding nations are quite pleased. It's kind of like, like, look who's been getting what's been coming to them. Um, the, 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 the attitude is kind of like, like where, 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 where's your God now? Um, like, like, see? And, and speaking out to that, Israel's saying, don't rejoice over my situation. Um, I'm getting what I deserved. Um, but, but, but don't get ahead of yourselves. God's still got me. I am getting what's due. Uh, but I, I got to face the music. But God will vindicate me in the end, and people will see how great God is. Okay, that, so that, that, that's kind of my, my rough paraphrase. But is, is this the response that you expect to have when faced with getting caught and being found guilty 
right in front of everybody in the most public way, right? Especially that first part. Um, you know, like I get the impulse to, to push back on everyone talking down on me and saying, you know, just you guys wait, you got it coming too, right? Right. Don't, don't go after me. You're, you're going to get it too. Right. And, and there's a sense of like, I'm going to want to just save face. And so, so I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip it back on you because, because I'm feeling humiliation. This is humiliating. Um, it's especially so when the people that are calling you out are the voices that you disagree with the most and they're right. Right. Can you imagine like, like if you think about, um, your, your least favorite, um, news station, um, that you loathe and they're right. And you you're just like, oh yeah. Right. Or, or you think about, um, the, another, um, somebody at work, um, who just has it out for you and you don't get along and then they call you out and, and, and they got you. And, and, and you're just like, like, you want to defend yourself because you don't want to give in to that, that, that person. And you, you think about this here, like Israel, like God's people are supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be a blessing to other nations, an example of what peace with God is all about. But um, this isn't the initial response. Um, it, it, we don't have Israel voicing a response of defensiveness. Um, the response actually is, is hold up, right, right. You're, you're right. Um, like my bad, this sucks. I, 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 I hate this and I got to own this. This, um, this makes me, it makes me think about an experience that I had when I was probably about nine or 10 years old. Um, my brother, uh, who's a couple years younger than me and I were out in front of uh, our house uh, on our street. And it was kind of like, it's like a quiet cul-de-sac. Um, I'm not sure what it's called around here, but just a stretch of the road that's kind of a dead end that there's not a lot of traffic on. So we're out in the middle of the road. And, and what we are doing, uh, I only think it makes sense to, to preteen boys. Because um, it doesn't make sense to me now. Um, we'd, we'd found a bunch of white decorative bedding rocks, um, the kind that you'd uh, put in, uh, in around your shrubs and your trees to make it look nice. Uh, and we decided it would be fun to spike them as hard as we can into the pavement to see if we can try to break them apart, um, even though they're much harder than the pavement. But um, I don't know why this was fun. Um, I don't know why we were doing it, but nine-year-old boy. Um, and so uh, I, I grabbed one rock um, and I just spiked it as hard as I could, right? I, I just launched it, it hit the ground and this went off in a weird direction. It flew like 20 feet away, straight into the rear windshield of my friend's dad's sports car. Um, and it just completely shattered the, the, the rear windshield. Um, and, and I just completely freaked out. Um, I was just like, dad is going to kill me. Um, and, and, and my brother's a witness 
and, 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 and once my dad's done killing me, my friend's dad's going to like resurrect me so he can kill me. Like, like, like I am dead every way. Like, like, and, uh, and all my thoughts were about like, how do I get out of this? Um, I was filled with shame. And so, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, how do I downplay it? And so like, I actually was just like sent my brother in to go tell my dad. Cause I'm like, I can't face this. And, and in the 30 seconds, like my, my brother, you know, he's his younger brother. He's like, my brother's in trouble. I'm getting dad. He's off. Um, and, and I'm thinking in my head, like, um, how, how can I get out of this? Like, well, you know, is my brother, it was my brother's idea to get, come out here. So, so it's his fault. If he hadn't got talked me to come out here, the window wouldn't have been broken or, or I'm, I'm trying to think like, like how on earth did, did that windshield shatter like that? It, it's like that, that, that's, that, that's not a good windshield lay. Like, actually, you know what, if, if my friend's dad was driving the car and the semi truck went by and launched the rock, it would have just shattered that, that window and hit him in the head and he would have swerved and been in an accident. I actually like helped him out because now he knows his window sucks. Um, right. Like I'm just trying to justify myself. Um, and, and, and I've, and I've built up in my head, like, um, I'm dead, I'm done. Uh, and, but the, the thing is like, like my dad came out, um, and, and he was mad. Um, and, and my friend's dad came out and he was mad and, and they're like, and I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money. I ended up working a lot of weekends to pay off this, but, but it was, it was, it was, it was also kind of like this dad moment where it's like, like as a dad, you're kind of like, um, I, I, I caught them talking and, and they're just kind of like, they're angry at me, but at the same time, they're just like, wow, that's impressive. Like, how did you sh- utterly completely shatter a windshield with one little rock like that was like the perfect throw um and, but but they have to be mad at me at the same time and and, and so there's this sense of like the justice needs to be served but but there's also this sort of sense like i don't want to just like like completely annihilate my kid um but but anyways i'm getting distracted on that um the point is that there was this sense of humiliation when you know you're in the wrong, right? And our impulse is to be defensive. It's to self-justify, self-justify to deflect, to, to not listen to the other party, right? Like, I don't want to face my friend's dad. Um, and, and think about all the issues that are being brought to light during the time we're in right now. Right. There's all these broad systemic and collective issues. There's racism, there's political affiliation, there's responses to the virus, there's the economy, and there's no shortage of personal issues that are coming up. Like, like, how's your relationship with your family? Um, What's hiding in the shadows of your own life that you're using to cope with the stress that we're in right now? Um, What's your response to seeing some of these things brought out into the light? And did you notice how in this passage, um, there's the imagery of light and dark are woven throughout. It's like, I will sit in darkness. God will be my light. I will bear indignation. God will please my, plead my cause. He will bring me out into the light. Here in this passage, like Israel owns it, finally. Um, but it's not a dismissive Oh, my bad. Sorry. You know, I, I'm not going to do it again. Um, you caught me. Um, sorry. There, it's, it's, 
when I sit in darkness, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. The, the, the response is not self-righteousness or, or self-defensiveness. It, it's owning your failings. It, it's owning your sin. And it's, it's understanding the weight and the gravity of it all. Um, like how many of us have been honestly listening to the critiques that hit at the core of who we are? And thinking especially like, um, you know, in, in just the contentiousness within politics and race and injustice, that's just everywhere right now. Um, and and that, that, that dovetails right in with the core of Micah's message. But, but the list just goes on and on um, where we're confronted with things. And it's a hard space when we have to reckon with our own failings. Um, our own depravity, um, the ways that we've been blind to sin and to injustices. Um, and what, what, what do we do when we're humiliated? Right? If the response is not self-defensiveness, then what is it? Well, simply put, um, and in the rest of our passage, we'll see it's trusting in God's character. And this trusting in God's character leads us to hope. So when we're faced with humiliation in relation to sin and injustice, um, we're to trust in God's character. That's Israel's posture here. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. We begin to see that in verse 10, where the enemy sees Israel being restored and judgment turning on those who are taking delight in the suffering of God's people. And this passage gives way to the three passages that work together to paint a picture of hope in who God is. And once we grasp who God is here, we'll see how he lifts us up in the face of the weight of that indignation and frees us to hope. So we move on to an image of restoration next. Micah switches it up with the next three verses, verses 11 to 13. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Micah jumps ahead into the future here. He envisions the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. The city of God has been restored to its original purpose, a place of refuge and peace for all of God's people. All the people of God who are exiled to foreign lands, to, to Egypt and to Assyria, will be welcomed back. And the boundary, that is the walls that formed the protective boundary for ancient cities, um, they've been extended in verse 11 to fit this expanded population that's coming back. But outside the walls, the earth is desolate in verse 13. And so, so even though God uses Israel's enemies to bring judgment upon them, it doesn't mean that God approves of all these things that the enemy nations have been doing. They're, they're still the ones who that exemplify the same injustices and abuses that Israel fell into in the first place. And this explains why Israel is so adamant to prove to their enemies that, that God is just and good and true. Now that, like back in verse 10, what is at stake in 
here in all of this is God's character. And maybe, maybe that's where you are in all of this. You know, you look around at the injustices of the world and the turmoil and the unrest, and you question God's goodness or even his existence. And, and those are valid concerns. And so uh, we, we need to press on in our passage if we're going to be able to grasp why Micah gave us this image of Israel trusting God, even as she faces judgment. So we have the image of an expanded future, restored city of God, welcoming back the scattered people in exile, restoring a place for the vindicated people who were judged by God. One item of note as we move on to the next section of our passage, we need to note that Micah transitions the language used to symbolize the oppressors of God's people. The historical context is that Micah is writing under the threat of Assyria coming in. That makes sense. But in verse 12, he brings in Egypt. And this is important because Egypt is the symbol of opposition to God. Egypt is the historical oppressor of God's people. And the stories of God liberating his people from Pharaoh in the Exodus form the imagination of God's people. And that's still true to this day, even for us. And by imagination, I don't mean imaginary or make-believe. I mean the, the data and the symbols that form the operating system that we run on. So our next passage, verses 14 to 17, Micah draws our attention back in time to focus on how God revealed his character to his people hundreds of years before. By focusing us on the past in history, Micah is grounding hope in a deeper reality than just the present, present experiences of his time. There, there's, there's two kinds of hope. There, there, there's hope that's grounded in naivety and hope that is grounded in a deeper reality that presses through the present moment and on into eternity. There's a type of hope that is more like wishful thinking. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to stay positive. I just focus on the good things. I believe everything is just going to work out in the end. Yeah, yeah, times are tough, but we'll, we'll, we'll get through this. If that's all Micah is going on so far, then, then he's just a naive optimist. He's not taking seriously the weight of the time. But if his hope as expressed here is grounded in something deeper, then maybe we have something to go on. And so we have here a hope that looks back to the past, grounds itself in who God has, received, who has revealed himself to be, which informs how we live in the present with an eye for what's to come. And so when it comes to God's character, we look back, which allows us to look forward. Verses seven, four, 14 to 17 read, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest. In the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. This section is a bit of a going back and forth between Micah and God. Micah speaks in verse 14, addressing God. 
God responds back in verse 15, and then Micah responds in kind in verses 16 and 17. Micah calls on God to lead his people, to shepherd them. He sees God's people starting out in isolation, alone in a forest in verse 14, but then implores God to lead them back to Bashan and Gilead. Those are two places in Israel's land that were known and valued for their fertile pasture land. It's an image of abundance and provision. Then God speaks in verse 15. He draws us back to the story of the Exodus where God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And here he draws us back to the operating system by which God's people understand God in the world. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. We're brought back to God raising up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses repeatedly petitions Pharaoh to let his people go. There's 10 plagues that are inflicted on Egypt, culminating in what will become known as the Passover, um, where the people of God are protected by the blood of a lamb on their doorpost as the angel of the Lord inflicts judgment on the firstborn sons of the slave master Egypt. We're brought back to God's people leaving Egypt, heading towards the promised land, to the direction of Gilead and Bashan, but being pursued by Pharaoh's army. With Moses at the lead, God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites pass through. Once God's people are safe on the other side, the sea crashes down and takes out Pharaoh's army. There's judgment and liberation. And then once they're on the other side, God's people... Everyone gets hungry and they complain to God and and God gives them food from heaven. He gives them manna and quail and he makes water flood of rocks when they're thirsty. And eventually under Joshua, God leads his people into the land promised to them. And, And this is the story of God's people. This is our story that we're a part of. God may discipline his people. That's what Micah is expressing at the beginning of our reading today but it's with the aim of restoration and liberation from sin and oppression. That's where the hope is starting to spring up from in the midst of humiliation. Looking back to the past and seeing that God is faithful to his people, to his promises. Even before the story of the Exodus, we have God's promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis, where Abraham's descendants will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That will will even play into the final section of Micah that we're, we're, we're getting into. Micah responds to God in verse 16 and 17, expressing how the nations have set themselves up in opposition to God. Those nations characterized by injustice and oppression and military might, they're going to flee in fear before the Lord in shame when they realize, when they see how God defends and cares for his people. So, 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 we can see, see a picture of God developing here. We can see that God is faithful to his people. God is powerful against the forces of evil and oppression. God brings justice to oppression. God provides for his people when they're in need. God restores his people when they fall, even if it's just a remnant of faithful people who mess up a lot. But when we're confronted with our own sin and fallenness, we, we don't despair. We first look to who God is. And that brings us to the final oracle, the last poem by Micah. It's, it's like, like the final, um, final uh, just high point at the end of the book. Micah says, 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah now addresses God directly in praise. This is the final crescendo. Micah is overcome by who God is. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. It's another glimpse into God's character. God doesn't delight in punishing us and disciplining us and making us miserable. He actually delights in showing us steadfast love. The, the word here is hesed. Um, it's a love that pours out itself undeservedly in a sacrificial manner. Um, it's, it's a love that, that goes out specifically to people who, who don't deserve it and can't earn it. And again, Micah takes up the imagery of Exodus here. When he says, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He's actually taking the words of Moses from what's called the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And he's changing them slightly. Moses composed a song to commemorate God's awesome act of liberating his people from slavery in Egypt. In that song, Pharaoh's army is tread underfoot and thrown into the sea. But Micah's expanding the scope of God's saving acts. God isn't just judging oppressive forces. He's dealing with the sin that afflicts every one of us and trampling it down. He says in verse 18 that he will pardon the iniquity and pass over transgression. What is all that about? This is actually pointing us ahead in time from the perspective of Micah, from the perspective of Micah, but back in time from where we are. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's taking the language of the distant past, the language of the Exodus, our operating system, passing over, Passover, and showing us how God deals with us in our sinfulness and our humiliation. In Jesus, God steps into his creation and deals with our sin. In Exodus, the Passover was literally God passing over judgment on his people. If, they'd followed his, if they had followed his directions, to have the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. I know that sounds weird, um, but, but where there is sin, um, it always results in death. That's the end result. And the only thing that saved God's people when Egypt was being judged was God's gracious provision through the death of the lamb. And Jesus, you'll often hear, is, is often referred to as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So in Jesus, his death on the cross pays the price for our sin. And in that death, which was a humiliating death, he stands with us in our humiliation and bears us through into life. He dies so that we can live. He's resurrected so that we can be restored. That is God's love demonstrated for us. And it's right in line with who God has been and who will continue to be. He doesn't change. So our hope is grounded in who God is. Our hope is grounded in Jesus who shows us the full expression of God's steadfast love for us. 
And Micah ends with an expression of steadfast trust in God's steadfast love. That God will show faithfulness to his people, to Jacob and Abraham, the forefathers God pledged himself to in days past. We stand on the other side of that promise being realized in Jesus. And so what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection now stands as the source of our hope, looking to the future when Jesus returns and sets all things right. Jesus is confirmation of God's faithfulness and love. And so how is it that we can bear the indignation of the Lord? How is it that we can face humiliation with hope? The truth is we can't do it on our own. And we don't have to do it on our own. Jesus is the one who bears our indignation. Jesus is God with us in the midst of our shame. Jesus is the one who pleads my cause when I stand guilty. And Jesus is the one who brings restoration and healing. And he is faithful to see us through, no matter what we're facing. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.